Welcome to River City Church Podcast. We're glad you're listening. We believe this message will be encouraging and timely. To connect with us, find us on social or at rivercitychurch.co. Book of Hebrews, though, is a uh, it, it's it's a message written to Jewish believers in the New Testament, and we don't know who the author is. Uh, my personal thoughts is it's it maybe the Apostle Paul. That's kind of one of the prevailing opinions, but it could be a number of people. But the core of the message is to encourage believers who were Jewish believers in Christ during a season where they had uh, many of them were beginning to. Uh, really waver in their faith and their confidence, uh, and they had, they had many of them endured and overcome persecution, but they came to a place where they were beginning to wonder. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage them. And I just want to give you this. As, as you're studying God's Word, and it's so important that we don't just read the Bible, we study the Bible. We let the Bible get on the inside of our hearts and transform us from the inside out. Uh, but when we study God's Word, it's important to know there's kind of this, this field of understanding the Bible in, uh, in, in studying Scripture that we start with things like, you know, who is the Bible written to in this particular passage? What was the audience that it was first written to by, let's say, one of the apostles, and then how would they have understood it, and then from there, how does it apply to me? And so all of this applies to us, although there's going to be some concepts that may be new for you, especially being, you know, in most of us, most of our cases, Gentile believers in Jesus, uh, but, but there's a lot of pictures borrowing from the Old Testament. If you look at the Bible, it's, it's of course, divided between Old and New Testament, and Old Testament being the Old Covenant and the New Testament being the New Covenant that's brought in through Jesus. And so we're going to look at some of these concepts today, but I want to start with this. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse one, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So through Jesus, through God's Son, fully God, fully man, that God's Son, born of a virgin, sent to earth, born of a virgin, died on the cross, took our sin, took our place buried in a tomb, and three days later rose from the grave. Jesus came for you and for me. And it says here that, that God spoke to us through his Son, and that he also, the same Son's the one through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of the glory of God, the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you see Jesus, you can see what God's like. Are you with me? So if you want to know who God is and what God's like, just look at Jesus. And so we see this, that he's the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. And so Jesus upholds all of creation by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where he is right now, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, having become so much better than the angels. This word better is, you know, I think if you do, at least from the New King James, if you do a word search of this in the New Testament, it occurs more in the book of Hebrews than any other place. In fact, if I could summarize the book of Hebrews with one word, it's this word better. Because as the writer contrasts the Old Testament and Old Covenant with the new in Jesus and the old system of worship and the sacrifices and the temple and, and all of the things that had gone before with what Jesus brought in, he's contrasting because at this time there was still a temple in Jerusalem. There were still sacrifices being made. And Jewish believers uh, who, had, who had had some time passed began to wonder, well, well, did we miss something somewhere? And this writer is saying, no, Jesus is sufficient. And not only is he sufficient, but he's better. 
And I've got four points for you today from this, and we're going to look at several passages here. But number one is very simple. Jesus is better than you think. Jesus is better than you think. Whatever you've heard, whatever you've known, whatever you've even seen, even as a Christian, uh, even as a follower of Christ, there's so much more than you've even experienced in Jesus. And I want to just start by pointing to this passage and hopefully capturing a little bit, recapturing for some of us the wonder of who Jesus is. Because I think somewhere along the way, we become familiar with God. We become familiar, and I'm very passionate about people understanding that they can draw near no matter who they've been, no matter where they've gone, no matter what they've done, they can draw near to Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross, the blood of Christ shed on the cross, made a way so that we could be forgiven, and the purpose of salvation is not just to be saved from our sin and saved from eternity in hell, but it's to be saved for something. It's to be saved for God himself. And so the goal is that we can know God. And I I want to constantly, because sometimes we have this idea that's not too far from what the Old Testament uh, saints had, that God was somehow distant. But Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us, so that we could know God for ourselves. And so that Jesus, who died on the cross, did not die for distance, but so that we could draw close. And so, as a believer, that's why I know a lot of Christians don't pray. We know we should pray, we we feel like we ought to pray, but we don't pray, and the reason we don't pray, I think, sometimes is we talk ourselves out of it. We disqualify ourselves, we feel like we're not good enough to approach God. Instead of coming boldly before the throne of grace and recognizing that Jesus has made a way for us. And, and I, don't, I don't want to ever lose that. But there's this kind of dichotomy, this, this, this two sides to it that are both vitally important. One, that we have a sense of being always welcome in the presence of Jesus. Sinners came to Jesus and they ate with him and they sat with him and they were drawn to him. Children came to Jesus. You know, Jesus wasn't like a lot of religious people because religious people, nobody wants to hang out with them. But children are drawn to Jesus. You know, I, I, everybody has people in their family when they're kid, little kids growing up that you're kind of a, afraid to go near that person. You know, that, that relative that just looks mean and looks angry. And, and, and there's just something about kids that they're, they, they're not drawn to people that are full of life and full of joy, but they are drawn to people that are that are happy, that are joyful. And so kids are drawn to Jesus. And there's something about that we're always welcome. But I think just as true and just as important is as the church, we don't ever lose sight of the holiness of who Jesus is. That he's incredibly approachable, but he's also the one who by his word upholds the universe and keeps it in place. By the word of his power, that same Jesus invites us close. If you can just capture this for a moment, I love this, Isaiah 29, 13. It says, what we just read, it says that he's become so much better than the angels. We're impressed with angels. We're impressed with supernatural. We're impressed with a lot of things. But somewhere along the way, sometimes we lose our wonder of who Jesus is. And I think there's a lot of symptoms in the church that are a result of losing our awe of God. Losing our reverence of who Jesus is. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, because his people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. What a tragedy to ever divorce our heart from our worship, our heart from our singing, our heart from our adoration, that we go through motions and we say the right words, but there's somehow now a disconnect. Can I tell you, God sees right through the mask, (laughs) 
People can be fooled, but God isn't. He sees right to our heart. He also sees when other people look and maybe judge somebody on the outside, but he sees right to the heart and says, no, they're a sincere worshiper. I think we looked at a couple weeks ago how the woman came who had a messy background, to say the least. She came to Jesus, and she poured out a fragrant oil upon his head and upon his feet. She wiped his feet with her tears and her hair. And, 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 and as she's worshiping Jesus, this Pharisee of Pharisees who's sitting there in the room, this religious guy, he says, doesn't, this one, doesn't Jesus know who this woman is? But Jesus saw her worship. So here in Isaiah, he, he, he highlights God saying there's some people who have, who have drawn near with their mouth and honor with their lips, but their hearts are far, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They're living based on information from other people instead of a personal relationship with God. Therefore, behold, here's what God says in verse 14. I love this. Behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. I, I, I love this. God says, okay, they think they have me figured out. They think they have me understood, and they've reduced me to the level of their religion. But I'm about to do a wonder upon a wonder, so that it's going to confound even what they think is wisdom. It's actually foolishness. God's saying, I, I want to I bring back wonder to my people. Worship is a response to the awe of God. There's this phrase used throughout the Old Testament especially, but the whole Bible, it's the fear of the Lord. And, and sometimes we read that and we think it's talking about being afraid of God. But the fear of the Lord is an awe of God. It's a reverence of God. It's a recognition that he is holy. And, and, and it's this response, this awe of God that I don't want us to ever lose. Can I tell you, I've seen people who've been in church for years not be any longer moved by that same presence of God that somebody who's, a, who's sometimes even totally unchurched steps into the room and God touches them. And they're like, what is this? Now, usually they don't have language for it. They're like, you know, I, I literally had uh, my, my, my cousin had uh, her boyfriend at the time came into church one time. And we had prayed for him. The presence of God touches this guy. And he goes, I used to take so many drugs to feel this good. <laughs> what is this? I mean, no, you don't have to take drugs to feel good. Okay, anyway. But it's the presence of God. It's joy. Everything else is a counterfeit trying to fill a place that only Jesus can fill. But when we, we encounter him for ourselves, there's an awe of God to recognize. See, no, that, when you get to that place, nobody has to tell you to worship. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he's delivered us from the power of darkness. Aren't you glad for that? And he's conveyed us, he's, he's moved us from one kingdom to another, to the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. So, so, so everything's created through him, but it's also for him. So when I'm giving myself to God, I'm actually giving him back what's already his. <laughs> and when I'm worshiping, I'm returning to God what's already his. 
my, my heart, my, my affections. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. Do you know the head of the church is not an organization, it's not a board, it's not even a pastor, it's Jesus? The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's fully God, fully man. In the Old Testament, we see this picture of a priest bringing an offering to God to, to take the place or, or to atone for the sins of the people. And Jesus comes to be the fulfillment of this, that he's both priest and he's sacrifice. That's the amazing thing about Jesus, is it takes an entire Old Testament, an entire history of a nation of Israel, just to give us a glimpse of who Jesus is coming to be. And I think it's going to take all of eternity to fully begin to even come close to grasping. And, and, and so, he's priest and he's offering. In the Old Testament, they had a couple different, they had several different kinds of offerings, but they had one type called a scapegoat, and they had a sin offering. A sin offering would be an, a, a, a sinless or a, a, a spotless lamb. A spotless lamb would be offered as a sacrifice in the Old Testament at the temple. And then they would take something called a scapegoat, and the priest would, over this scapegoat, would declare the sins of the nation, and then they would take this scapegoat and they would release it out in the wilderness so that it could metaphorically, could spiritually carry the iniquity away from the camp. And Jesus came to be both our sacrifice on the altar, on the cross, but also the scapegoat to take our sin. He's both priest and he's offering. John 12, 20, Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem one day, and there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, it says. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, Philip, one of his disciples, they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I love that phrase, because I think the world is looking for something, and, and, and oftentimes the world, you know, Jesus is described in the Bible as the desire of the nations. I think sometimes what, well, I know for a fact, what, what, what people have often rejected is religion. I think we owe the world an encounter with a very real Jesus, a real word and a real Holy Spirit that changes lives. The Bible tells us there's no salvation apart from Jesus. That's why Jesus has to be central to the message of the church. The Bible is about Jesus. Do you know, you can read this entire book. I, m I remember in college, I took a world religion class, and they spent, they talked about every world religion, the merits of each one, and then they got to Christianity, and they talked about Christmas trees and Easter eggs. And now as a Christian, I go, that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> I'm like, I can't find either one in the Bible. Like, why, why were they so, and I remember literally, it was, I, my professor was a, a, a bitter ex-Catholic. <laughs> and would cherry pick verses from the Bible to criticize Christianity. And that was, that was the extent of what we were told about Christianity. But, but you can read the Bible and miss Jesus because you're looking for the wrong thing. Jesus said the Pharisees did that. They memorized the Bible, but they missed the Messiah who was coming. So we want to be, we want to see and know Jesus. The church is built on Jesus, as we saw. Now, number two, let's go through the next three points. Number two is that Jesus, first, Jesus is better than you think. 
Number two is Jesus brings a better hope. Hebrews chapter seven. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 19. The law, talking about the Torah, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The law made nothing perfect. So the purpose of the law, beginning with the Ten Commandments, is to reveal the sinfulness of sin. So it's, it's, it reveals our need of a Savior. We realize that we're, we cannot save ourselves. In fact, if you could boil down essentially every world religion, it comes down to this, man trying to get to God. But the gospel of Jesus, the message of the Bible, is that God came to man through Christ to provide a way for us to be saved. And so Jesus brings a better hope. The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. There's that word better again. It's a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, of course, here he's contrasting the old covenant and the new. But I want you to see something that no matter what we've been putting our hope in in the world, can I tell you, there's a lot of people putting their hope in a lot of things that will never pay off. I don't know if you've got any of those people in your life. They always have another scheme. They always got something going on, you know. I, I, I've got, you know, I've got friends like that, that, that there's always something, you know, they're, they're, and, and, and there comes a place where you recognize there's certain things we hope in that don't pay off because our hope has to be in something that's unshakable in the world. Jesus brings a better hope, and it's a hope that causes us, invites us to draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 14, inasmuch then the children have been partakers of the flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through his death, talking about the cross, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Wow. Jesus didn't just come to play games. He came to destroy, (laughs) crush, make a mess, crush darkness. And release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I, I think fear has captured so many people's hearts. But Jesus brings a better hope. He brings a hope that's beyond, of course, this life. But he brings a hope right in the midst of this life that we can build our lives on something that's sure and steadfast. Indeed, he doesn't give aid to the angels, verse 16 but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or payment for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also able to aid those who are tempted. So, so what's this talking about? It's saying that Jesus crushed the devil to set you free. I... I love what Jason pointed to in the beginning with the cross. There's something innate when you know what Jesus paid for that you recognize. Faith is, is of course, trusting in his promise, but sometimes faith has an offensive warfare side to it. To say, no, no, this ain't okay. This isn't all right. Why? Because I know what Jesus paid for. I, I, I know what price he's paid for this. And if he's paid the price and he's, he's called me to freedom, why, it, it, listen, if Jesus set you free from fear, why should you stay in fear any longer? One more moment in your life. I think fear comes from misplaced trust. Anxiety, whatever it is, however, whatever form, shame. If Jesus has paid the price for our sins, why should we allow shame to grip us anymore? 
Do you know, living in shame as a believer who's been forgiven is like saying to Jesus, your sacrifice wasn't enough. It's also true when we as the church try to hold people to who they were instead of what Jesus has called them to be, instead of what Jesus paid a price for. We need to start seeing people the way God sees people. Okay, I know Hebrews four four. I got lots of Hebrews verses for you tonight. That's okay. <laughs> Hebrews four. I got twice as much from because I wasn't preaching last week. All right, Hebrews four fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Sometimes we think God's distant. God's God can't understand. You don't. You have no idea. You know what I'm going through. I mean, we know. Of course, God knows everything. But somehow we feel like He can't. He's never had to experience what we've experienced. Well, that's, that's, the Bible's telling us he can sympathize. He was, of course, without sin. But he was, watch this, verse 15, was in all points tempted as we are. He overcame it. He was without sin. He says, therefore, let us, in light of this truth, in light of the fact that Jesus is our high priest who invites us into the presence of God, let us therefore come boldly. If, if I could, there's a false humility that has gripped the church for so long. It's a false humility that religion tries to crush people, put them in a box and tell you, you know, well, just, I, oh, I could never do anything great for God. <laughs> I just got to hang on till Jesus comes back. God, please. Some of you all are praying that every time you watch the news. Okay. He says, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. How do you approach God in prayer? Do you come boldly? I could never do that. <laughs> I could never presume to. No, no. He says, come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? So we can obtain mercy and find grace in time of need or time of trouble that when we're going through it, we can go to God. When we've messed up, we can go to God. When we've fallen, we can go to God. Some people, when they fall, they run from God. Don't ever run from God. Run to him. It's like somebody saying, I'm too sick to go to the doctor. Like, it's just ridiculous. But we, we, we think that would be foolish, but we say things like this, I'm too messed up to go to church. I could never pray for that person. I could have faith for them because, see, it's easy for us to ask somebody else, and I believe in having people pray for us. We do it as a church. We, we'll do it tonight. Their altar team, people full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, are going to declare the word of God over you. That's powerful. But, you know, sometimes I think we, we don't think we can pray too. And the reason we don't think we can approach the throne is because we, don't, we, we think other people are more spiritual than us. It's quiet now, Pastor Jason. I mean, I've seen this. I, can I just say, I've experienced this. I know that I'm supposed to pray for somebody, and I'm like, God, I really don't want to pray for them right now. I just was arguing with my wife five minutes before. I was just, I, I was just, you know, driving a little too fast down the road. You know, we, and we know us, and because we know us, we feel like we're unable to, can I just tell you, the cross is the reason we can approach God. It's the reason we can approach God on our bad days as well as our good days. 
It's, it's really sad when I think that I'm doing so well I don't need Jesus. Okay. He brings a better hope, a hope of salvation, a hope of healing, a hope of forgiveness, true forgiveness, freedom. He pours out the Holy Spirit in our lives to give us power in our walk with God. Number three, Jesus brings a better promise. He brings a better promise. Uh, chapter 8, verse 6 is this, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry compared to the Old Testament and the priests and all that came before. He has a more excellent ministry, and he's also the meteor of a better covenant established on, there's this word again, better promises. Better covenant, better promises. What, what's a covenant? Now, we, we've kind of lost the importance of covenant, I think, in our generation. A covenant is something, it's a promise sealed by blood. It's a promise sealed by blood. And it's a promise that one party pledges themselves and all that they have to the other. God, throughout the Bible, initiates covenants with people. He starts from the beginning with Adam, and then has a covenant with Noah, and then you see with Abraham and David and Israel, Moses and, and, and Israel. But then he sends Jesus, who on the Last Supper, the night he's betrayed, holds up a cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, a promise sealed by blood. It's a pledge of one life for another. And in this arrangement, God was pledging himself to us. See, when I got married to my wife, here's the equation. When I got married to my wife, she had, she had already, I was, uh, I just graduated college, but I didn't have a lot of stuff. Anybody who was in college knows what I'm talking about. I think I had one piece of furniture. My wife was a little bit further ahead in that department. She had her own place and had, had some stuff she had gotten, you know, some furniture. And so when we got married, I showed up with my one piece of furniture. Can I just say, she, she didn't get the better deal in that equation. And, and when it comes to God, when we entered into a covenant relationship with God, we came with our sin, we came with our shame, we came with our guilt and our brokenness, and God came with his forgiveness and his grace, and his redemption, and his healing, and his freedom, and all that heaven has provided, not only to get us out of our brokenness, but into our purpose. And he says, I, look what, I, can I tell you, he, he gave us all of that, we got the better end of the equation. <laughs> but, but this is so important. When we entered into a covenant relationship with God, and that's what you did the day you say yes to Jesus, you're receiving the benefits of that covenant that Jesus paid for on a cross. He made a promise sealed with blood. This is so important because the Bible is letting us know when God makes a promise, he doesn't just, you know, we, this isn't like fortune cookie promises. <laughs> it, it, it's not like wishes. You know, I, 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 my favorite, one of my favorite places to go in the world is Disney World. I love to go to Disney, and they'll have these great big firework shows, and they'll sing great songs about wishes. I, I said it a couple weeks ago, you know, if I'm going through something, don't send me your good vibes, thoughts, and feelings. <laughs> God's promises aren't like that. His promises are backed up with his word and his presence and his power and all of heaven because God has committed himself by covenant. 
And the basis of that covenant is Jesus. And because the basis is Jesus, it's not you and me. It's not if we had a good day or a bad day. It's Jesus. And Jesus came to bring us something real. John 1.16 says this. I'm almost done. John 1.16. Of his fullness, we have all received. God doesn't give some of himself. And this is a staggering idea. And, and, and the closest picture we have is marriage. And I believe marriage is meant to illustrate this concept. Because when you're in a marriage, a covenant relationship, it's different than Somebody you had to swipe right to meet. Good. Not all of you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's more than just a, a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or something. That's, there's a commitment and there's a covenant relationship. And when you, when you get married, I've married, had a privilege of marrying many people over the years in ministry. And it's one, one of the most important things I want them to understand before they say I do, is this a, this is a covenant you're entering into. And when God and I, when, in our relationship with Jesus, when we're in covenant relationship, it's not, a, it's not a half-hearted thing. God hasn't given part of his life. He's given all of himself. Of his fullness, we have all received. Grace for grace, or grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want, to, I want us to focus on this word truth for a second. Truth here is not in contrast to a lie. It's not to say that in the Old Testament it was a lie, and in the New Testament it's the truth. But here, here's what it is. There's the difference between shadow and reality. One was something that pointed to an experience, but Jesus came to bring grace and the reality, the truth of that experience. So in the Old Testament, they had a cloud. I talked about that a couple Sundays ago. In the Old Testament, they had a tabernacle and they had a temple, but you and I have something even better than they had. And, and the reason I want us to capture this is as the church, so many times, I think we think we have something less. We read about Elijah calling down fire from heaven. We read about Moses meeting God on the mountain. We read about the parting of the Red Sea, and we think they have something less. I just read it to you tonight. You have something better. <laughs> A better covenant, better promises, the reality and the truth. The last final point, number four, we have Jesus brings a better kingdom. One last passage, Hebrews 12. Verse 18, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burn with fire to the blackness. It's, here he's speaking of Mount Sinai. God bringing, uh, Moses bringing Israel to the mountain. God comes down the mountain with fire and smoke, and that freaks them all out. <laughs> oh, God, you're scared, and we thought. Moses, you go talk to God and give us the rules. We'll do whatever he says. Just don't make us go talk to him. People have been making that exchange ever since. Pastor, you go read the Bible. Tell me what it says. You, sister, so-and-so, you go pray for me. Tell me what God says. When you and I have been invited to go up the mountain ourselves with God, to come before his word ourselves, to be filled with the Holy Spirit for ourselves, you and I have been given a better kingdom. He says, this is what we've come to, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, to the God, to God, the judge of all, 
The spirits of just men perfect, just men made perfect to Jesus, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice and judgment. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy to those who receive him. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more we shall not if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Here's what I want you to catch, verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. Can I tell you what all of us have experienced in the last two years especially is a lot of shaking. And, and, and while things can take different forms, the reality is the world is always going to go through seasons of shaking because the world itself is built on something that's shakable. If you ever put your trust in something that is unreliable, God in his mercy has to allow that thing to be shaken so that you find refuge in the thing that's unshakable. He says that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, verse 28, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Jesus brings a better kingdom. It's a kingdom that can't be shaken by what's going on in the world around us. And I think our response to the problems around us has everything to do with how aware we are of the kingdom inside of us. You have the king. You have Jesus. And he's given you a far better kingdom. Would you stand to your feet? Let me pray with you tonight. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come down too. I don't think in 17 years of ministry I've ever tried to do a surface overview of the book of Hebrews before. But can I just tell you, the message of the book of Hebrews, the writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, letting them know, Jesus is better. He's a better high priest. He's a better sacrifice. His house is a better house. And it's just as important to us today that we recognize, know, and believe that. That he gives us a better hope than anything the world can offer. That he gives us a better kingdom that's unshakable, that nothing around us, no matter what's happening around us, can shake. You can trust in it because you can trust in the one who's called you. You've got that bad report. Go to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. You've got that need. Go to the kingdom that never runs out. You feel like you're not enough. Go to the one who's always more than enough. He upholds everything, including us, by his word but we've got to come to him, to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm going to ask for two things. If we would pray right now, you say, you know what? I don't have a relationship with God like you're talking about. I know I gave you a lot of Bible tonight, but I want you to catch this. Jesus is the point of his word, and Jesus is the only way for us to be saved. 
Some people don't like that idea. But at the end of the day, you know, if a firefighter comes to me in the middle of the night and says, your house is on fire, I don't want to debate it. I don't want to argue about it. I just want to find a way out. (laughs) Jesus is the way. Truth of life. If you don't have a relationship with God, all starts there. Just bow your heads, close your eyes real quick. We believe this message will be encouraging and timely. To connect with us, find us on social or at rivercitychurch.co.